Well, good morning. Just, uh, before I begin, just to say, you've probably noticed that Dave today prayed for some people by name. And um, we don't offer prayers vaguely, um, vague prayers to a vague being for vague things. We offer specific prayers to a specific being for specific people. Um, and that's how you get answers to your prayers. We're not talking to the universe and offering our good wishes for people in our community who hurt. We would like the God who created the universe to reach down into our midst and touch our people specifically. Okay? So uh, just to say, if that seems new to you or different, it just comes from our theology of prayer. We believe in a real God who really is meeting us, who has power to touch our lives. And when we pray, we're asking for that power to come down and be part of our community. So I think that's just terribly important for you to hear. Um, that's the motivation. Uh, I get to talk to you about uh, teaching this morning. And uh, just before I begin, there's, there's lots on the table today, lots on the sermon table. And um, I cut a lot out, and it's still long. Um, so uh, this is a Sunday where take what you can, uh, do the best you can. I've gotten ink on myself, so you see little marks on my hand. I, um, there's a pen that exploded next to me. Um, you'll see things. There'll be lots of things today on the menu, lots of things on the plate. Take what you can. Um, you've got the notes in front of you, a whole lot of scripture to read. Um, if the best thing that happens today is that you got to hear some scripture, I'm happy. That's good. So let's talk about the um, testing the spirits. One of the ongoing problems I think we have as Christians is understanding the difference between being critical and becoming critics. Um, we are asked to be critically minded, to think critically, but we are not tasked to be critics and evaluators of what goes on around us. Uh, Jesus does call us quite clearly to be critical, to think critically, to be discriminating of our teachers and of our world. And the verse that contains this teaching is well known. Matthew 10, 16 says this, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. You will note the snaky picture behind me. Okay? Uh, I am inviting you to be shrewd as a snake and as innocent as a dove. The serpent is that creature from the ancient Near East thought to be wisest and craftiest of all creatures. We are to be wise like the serpent in our thinking, but at the very same time to be like the dove in its innocence. Um, ooh, I've boomed. The dove is one of the stupidest creatures of all. So you are to be pure and innocent like the dove. And too often, I think you will agree, the Christians are as wise as doves and innocent as, as serpents. So we are dumb and evil rather than smart and pure. So I begin with this distinction because I'm about to teach you, as I think John teaches us, how to be critical of teaching. But becoming critical of teaching does not mean you should not be confused with becoming a critic we're called to be discriminating about what we listen to as Christians, but not belligerents who are trying to fight our way through good teaching. And perhaps maybe the most important thing I can say by way of introduction is simply this. The purpose of knowledge in the Christian life is to serve love and obedience. If you learn more, it's so you can love more. If you learn more, it's so that you can obey more effectively. Knowledge is not to puff us up. Knowledge is to serve our love for our Lord, better obey his commandments toward one another, 
and our world. Knowledge serves love. So with this in mind, I want to begin with the reading of God's word. And today I'm going to read from 1 John chapter 3, end of chapter 3, to the, and the first few verses of chapter 4. So um, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word today? It's going to be on the screen behind us now. John says this, this is his commandment, <clears throat> that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he that is Christ abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. So briefly, we are continuing to journey together through the book of 1 John as he stewards and guards our abiding in Christ. It was a few weeks ago now when I spoke about what it means to live in the end times, I mentioned then that we would have a chance to look at greater length at John's thoughts on how to evaluate good teaching and bad teaching. And today's passage is the one that brings us to that subject. But perhaps on the surface, this doesn't look very much like a passage about teaching. And I want to explain for a few minutes why I think this is the case. This is a, it's a relatively simple message with a pretty complex passage behind it. So what's going on? What's happening in this passage specifically? Specifically, what does John mean by that strange phrase in chapter 4, verse 1, test the spirits? What is he saying in here? So in my experience, many interpreters and many pastors seem to think that by this phrase, John means something like, we should test prophetic spirits. And perhaps especially because he also says in verse 1 that many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we're testing prophetic spirits here. Now, these commentators and pastors envision a situation where John's church is filled with all sorts of prophetic types, where people are regularly getting words from angels and powers, and where maybe John's people are in danger of being led astray by these false powers. And the simple test to determine whether the prophetic word spoken in the church is valid is to ask the spirit motivating the word whether or not it affirms the lordship of Jesus. So you're testing that spirit to see if it affirms Jesus' lordship. In other words, uh, under this thinking, John is speaking to the uniquely charismatic situation of this particular church. I don't think this is the case, and I don't think it for a number of reasons. One of those reasons is that to make this kind of interpretation work, we have to hold some funny ideas about prophecy and how it works in the church. And one day in the future, we'll take a longer look at the role of the spirit of prophecy in the life of the church. But the underlying idea here in this thinking seems to be that certain people in the church get powerful messages from unknown spirits. And after the message has been delivered, the message must be tested after a criteria of uh, validity. 
Now, I think there's a lot of really bad thinking about the nature of prophecy in the church, and one of the most bad thoughts we have is that people who have prophetic giftings get possessed by God's Spirit. This is one of the worst things we have. The Spirit comes over them, and in a moment of ecstatic filling, they feel utterly overcome. They lose their will, and they speak whatever the possessing Spirit demands that they speak. Sometimes this happens in certain charismatic environments. Like I said, there's going to be another Sunday to talk about our theology of the Spirit, our theology of how God says, uh, speaks to us and through us to one another. But I want to say very clearly right now that God never possesses people. Never, under any circumstances, does God possess people. God always preserves our freedom to refuse him. As Paul says quite clearly in 1 Corinthians 14.32, the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. The prophet, to be tested as a prophet, is always in control. It's never a moment where the prophet's out of control. This is not the Christian way. So all that to say, if you have a theology of prophecy that involves some kind of possession, some kind of loss of personal will, then it might make sense to interpret 1 John 4.1 in this way. You've got to test these unknown spirits for their validity before you accept their word. But if you happen to be testing a spirit in this way, we need to be really clear that you aren't having a conversation with a human agent. You're having a dialogue with an underlying spirit. I'll be blunt. If you find yourself in conversation with a spirit and not the person, you're not going to need discernment so much as you're going to need an exorcism. If you're talking to a person and you're not having a conversation with the person, this is possession. God doesn't possess people. That's Satan's business. Okay? So let's draw a really clear line about some of this theology. Now, I'm going to tell you in a minute why I think John is actually talking about teachers, but I want to be equally explicit about something else. I believe that God does indeed speak today through his people. God, the prophetic voice of God can be heard through human agents in the church. And since I believe God speaks, we should test the prophetic. This is exactly what we should test the things that are spoken. That's perfectly adequate and right. But I don't think John's advice helps us to do that very well. John's not speaking to this situation. We're going to require other passages and other sermons and other weeks to explore this stuff. So why do I think John is speaking specifically about teachers? Well, in the first place, and in the context of 1 John that we've been through for these past eight weeks, it seems a pretty radical change of subject to turn from the evaluation of, uh, to, to the evaluation of prophetic spirits. They haven't been in view, although there is no doubt in my mind that an excessive hunger for the prophetic has the potential to lead God's people out of abiding. If we're craving spiritual experiences, that's actually one of the ways that we can get sucked out of abiding in Christ's love. It's one of the ways it doors out, but I don't think that's what John has in mind. What is in view, and what's clearly in view in this passage, is the role that false teachers play in pulling God's people away from abiding in God's call. False teachers are most definitely in view. And this was especially clear in John's discussion of the end times from back in chapter 2. And there are some quite clear parallels between these, this passage and that one. Uh, both passages will go up on the screen, and I've highlighted some of the similar words for you. So 1 John 2, 22 and 23 says, that, "...who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son." Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Antichrist and confession, both in play relative to how we deal with false teaching in the end times. And here from chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, we have the similar language. 
By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. So this spirit that rejects Christ is already in the world. Some pretty clear parallels between both these passages, Christ, Antichrist, confession, the role of teachers. In John 2, he's speaking clearly of human agents. In John 4, for whatever reason, he's using the language of spirits, but he still appears to be speaking about human agents in this. Now, for me, this suggests quite strongly that John's concept of test the spirits is a form of testing your teachers, perhaps especially testing false teachers, teachers who come with messages from outside the community. This means the question John is addressing is this one. How will I know if my teacher is one of the false teachers prophesied by Jesus? That's probably a pretty important question. How will I know if one of my teachers is, in fact, one of the false teachers that Jesus said was coming? I'd like to know how I'll know that. And John says, test the spirits. So this leaves one last little puzzle just about the language of this passage, and that's why, that, why is it that John uses such odd language to talk about his teachers? Why call them spirits? I think there's a few explanations, but in offering them, I think we should remember that John is given to idiosyncratic language, and I also think you don't have to agree with me on what I say next, all right? So uh, maybe this is it, maybe it's not it. So first, for me, John's use of spirits for teachers in 1 John, where we're looking right now, looks a lot like his use of angels in the opening of Revelation. So if you'll recall, the book of Revelation actually is a letter, a letter written to seven different churches. And John was writing a real letter, and he had real churches in mind when he wrote the letter. And what he meant was for the elder, the pastor in charge of the church, to open the letter and read it aloud to the church. This is, the, this is how the letters work. You get the letter, you read it aloud. So we read that Jesus commands John to write his long letter. And this is Revelation 1.11. Jesus says, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So these are all known churches, um, all probably on a mail route, all going in a circle to one another. Okay? Real places, real people. A few verses later, Revelation 1.20, Jesus says... As for the, he'd seen a vision, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. If you're a really excited interpreter, you'll be like, wow, every church has an angel overseeing it. More likely, John's using the word angel to talk about the local pastor. Again, I'm not sure why, John just likes weird language sometimes. And he does this stuff. And so just to make it clear, you keep this in mind that a real human pastor at Ephesus opened the letter from John and in front of the church and read the words of Revelation 2.1, which says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. John's not writing to the angelic spirit of the church. He's writing to the senior pastor of the church. Stand up. And here's what I see. I know your deeds. I see your life. I know what's going on. And so um, this becomes really confusing unless you remember the word angel just means messenger. Just means someone sent. You're the messenger to this place. But there's a spiritual kind of connotation behind it. Every angel you meet in the Bible is a messenger from God. That's what they're doing. They're messengers. They carry missives in these ways. They do his will. So all that to say, when John speaks to human pastors in his revelation, he uses spiritual language to address them. And I think we're seeing the same thing here in 1 John. Now, there's one more answer for this. Why spirits, you might ask, Pastor Jeremy? I've got this one further answer. It's complex, but I think it has merit. I'll go over it quickly, though. 
If you recall a few weeks ago, we spoke about how in the church, through confession, the invisible God becomes visible. The God who cannot be seen in the community that, excuse me, is seen, the God who cannot be seen, the God who is invisible, is seen when we honor his name in our community. So if our community becomes the place where God is manifest, who in that community speaks with God's voice? It's not a supernatural reality. It's going to be the human pastor of the local church. And if this is the case, then what John is suggesting is that given the authority invested in your teachers as mouthpieces for God to the community, you better test them. And as for him, there is no better test than the confession that Christ came in the flesh. Okay, like I said, you don't have to agree with me about why he uses the language of spirits. I think he's talking to teachers. I think I can give you some accounting for it, but it won't be on the quiz later, okay? So how do we test our teachers? This is the bulk of the passage. Uh, For John, and what I see in our passage, he gives us two ways of testing, two kind of like ways that we can further break down to some solid, I think, some solid advice. So two big ways. So here's test number one. Ready? Test number one for how we evaluate teachers. Does the teacher exhibit antichrist thinking? That would be a really funny interview question. Do you exhibit antichrist thinking? Right? You get some funny answers, I think. But... Given how we've thought about this stuff, I think we can see it again, given how we talked about it a few weeks ago. So this is the clear message of verses 2 and 3. We've read them already, but I'll read them again. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, of which you've heard that it is coming and is now already in the world. Now, if you'll recall, a few weeks back I said that the Antichrist is a mindset and not a figure. That was the key point um, from that sermon a few weeks back. Antichrist is not a figure. It's not a boogeyman who's going to lurk in the shadows of world history. He's waiting for the right moment to emerge and deceive God's people. No, Antichrist is here now. He was there in the first century to the churches John is speaking to. He's in our midst in the thoughts and the attitudes of the people of God who reject the way of Christ in favor of the way of personal power. Reject the surrendering life of Christ in favor of clinging to my rights and power. Okay? That's the spirit of Antichrist. So how do teachers fall into the Antichrist spirit? Well, I think that teachers submit to the Antichrist spirit when we rely on our power rather than God's. Teachers submit to the Antichrist spirit when we rely on our power rather than God's. Remember, the spirit of Christ, what it means to be the Christ, is to surrender our power, our agenda, our will to the will of God. And this is the heart of meekness. It's not being weak or small or using a quiet voice. It's about the submission of personal power and ambition to the directing guidance of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the resurrected one, Christ. Submission does not mean giving up. It means letting God have the final say in how we live. Now, I fear that Antichrist thinking in Christian teachers is far more common than we'd like to admit. And I think this because there is a secret temptation that leads a teacher into Antichrist thinking. So the great temptation that leads to Antichrist thinking is to choose the useful over the faithful. The great temptation that leads to Antichrist thinking is to choose the useful over the faithful. So faithful teaching is teaching that is linked to the tradition of our faith. 
It seeks to find what God's word is for his people and then to deliver that word in a way that God's people can hear. For my part, I'm convinced that there is an eternal and unchanging message from our God. It's recorded in his word, and it has power for transformation in our lives in every era, for every culture, every ethnicity, every people group, every economic reach, every era. By contrast, useful teaching takes its cues for what to teach from what works. So what are the messages that uh, get the most butts in our seats? Let's take stock of that, and let's do more of those. What are the sermons that people like to hear? Uh, what programs and agendas get us the best HR? How can we get our name in the paper? How do we do that stuff? Now, faithful teaching asks the question, what's true? Useful teaching asks the question, what works? And to maximize popularity, teachers then edit the scriptures. We leave aside some of the words about sin, about sexual ethics, about greed, and we promote feeling good, life change, and how you can live your best life now. Now, Paul has some really clear words to say about this in the book of 1 Timothy. This is 1 Timothy 4, uh, verses 1 through 4, and Paul's writing to his protege, Timothy, giving advice on how to be a good pastor for the long run. And this is what he says, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, and this is the charge, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So, are we preaching what's useful or what's faithful? Okay. Now, this danger is not always so black and white. Sometimes it's black and white. There are points where it's like, this is really clear. You've walked away. But some of it's more subtle. Uh, 30, years ago, 30 years ago now, the North American megachurch movement was in full swing. And with it, the idea of crafting what we called seeker-sensitive churches. Now, the idea was to reduce the alienating accoutrements of Christianity, right? So in order to make the church more accessible, we took away crosses and got rid of liturgy, and we got rid of the reading of public scripture, and we had peppy music, and it was kind of like a, the early, it was like the beginning of TED Talks in some ways. It made you feel good. It was wildly successful because it was meant to be a really opening for first-time visitors. The unchurched were meant to be really comfortable. So I myself attended Willow Creek Community Church in outside Chicago, which was kind of the original megachurch for seven years, where Bill Hybels, Lee Strobel, and John Ortberg were my preaching pastors. It was a pretty interesting, I don't know them, like, <laughs> so, but interesting season. But in 2007, Willow released a really startling study. It was called Reveal Where Are You?, where they admitted that they had fundamentally failed to disciple people. They'd gotten butts in the seat, but they hadn't formed like anything like they'd wished. It was a deeply alarming study uh, for Willow at that time, and they had to come to a reckoning of it. They'd failed, to, they'd failed to disciple people, but they'd brought them in. So we choose the useful over the faithful because we believe on our understanding that God probably needs our help to get things done. That if he had better PR, the kingdom would advance much more quickly on the North Shore. Okay. But the whole architecture of our faith eviscerates any reliance on human power. 
That's why Paul is on about in the opening chapter of 1 Corinthians. He says, this is 1 Corinthians 1.25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Human wisdom considers the gospel and tries to smooth out the difficulties. Oh, that won't work. Oh, people won't like that. We've got to remove these difficulties. Human power thinks in terms of numbers, of efficacy, of success, of our grand plans, while God's wisdom thinks in terms of weak humans filled with the power of an infinite spirit. It's a different plan. In this respect, good teachers are empowered by the Spirit, not by their own cleverness. They are faithful more than they are functional. That was the first test, antichrist thinking. Second test is this, also coming out of John here, 1 John 4. Test number two, what is the teacher's relationship to authority? What's the teacher's relationship to authority? This is a little complex, but I do think it's right there in the text. Verse 6 says, We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So, is the teacher respecting the authority of John and the church who steward the story of Jesus? Are they listening to us? There's an us, the people who hold the narrative. Uh, And I think there's an echo of this in John's phrase from chapter 2, verse 19, that they went out from us, these Antichrist thinkers went out from us, because, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Now, for my money, this, these two verses point to the idea that the refusal to the submit to the authority of John of the church community formed around the confession of Christ is itself a test for teachers. In other words, a teacher tells you a great deal about himself by this relationship to authority. And as I reflected further on this, I was able to come up with four ways the teacher reveals his worth in relation to authority. I'm going to frame each one as a question, but these will be pretty brief treatments. All right, we're going to kind of go through these fairly quickly, although I think they deserve a longer time of attention. So authority criteria number one is this. Is the teacher connected to a community? Is the teacher connected to a community? All teaching comes from within the community, the community of the church, stewarding and shepherding the message of Christ all along, but also the local community. It's authorized. For example, I I believe that my spiritual authority to stand in front of you and teach comes from the call of our elders board and from our relationship together. That's the basis of that call. I'm not authorized on my own to teach. I'm authorized by a church to teach. One of the great dangers of the internet age is that teachers can have platforms when they are not connected to church communities. They can be widely successful teachers, but there's no church life behind them. And I'll say this much to you as well. If they're not in a community, most often it's because there's a problem with their character. They couldn't get along in a community. They were troublemakers of the wrong sort. I try to be a troublemaker of the right sort. They couldn't couldn't make it work. And I'll submit to you also that all the tests of character about leadership that are given to you in the New Testament for what qualifies someone for leadership in the church, all of those have to do with your life and community. They can only be tested by this stuff. Um, So these are are this community life stuff. This is why (laughs) I will be extremely explicit here. If my marriage were ever to fail, by God's, we're not anywhere near, if my marriage were ever to fail with Liesel, I consider myself fundamentally disqualified from the pulpit. Okay? 
If I can't love her and I can't make things work from her, what right do I have to stand in front of you? So I hold myself to, a, I try to hold myself to a high standard. I think that's important. Community and character, I just said, I'm happy to say somewhat unequivocally, do not listen to a Christian teacher who has no church community. Don't listen. Okay? Authority criteria number two. Does the teacher stand within the tradition? Does the teacher stand within the tradition of the church? Uh, Jeremiah 6.16 is a lovely, lovely verse. It says this, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and seek and, uh, seek and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your soul. Stand in the crossroads and seek the ancient paths. I believe there is a long and unbroken line of teaching that stretches back to the early church. And good teachers stand within the tradition. Bad teachers break with it. And you can measure a teacher by her relationship to that authority. Does she hate it or does she love it? Does she teach it or does she ignore it? A few weeks ago, I quoted C.S. Lewis on this, and I just want to read that quote again for you this morning because I think he puts it really clearly. He says, Our business as teachers is to present that which is timeless in the particular language of our own age. The bad preacher does exactly the opposite. He takes the ideas of our own age and tricks them out in traditional language of Christianity. So the best teachers take the old stuff and bring it out and just make it new and fresh for the time. The bad teachers take the modern stuff and give it little Christian wrappings to make it sound like it's faithful when it's not. Now, in every age of the church, there are temptations to edit or ignore the things that we think are the awkward bits of our Christian message. The necessity of the cross, the necessity of recognizing personal sin, the requirement for transformation, the existence of miracles, the resurrection of Christ, sexual ethics, economic ethics, and so forth. Now, the point right now is not to list all the ways that it can go wrong, but to highlight the fact that there are very few ways it can go right. And each one has to do with alignment with the tradition. There's only one way it can go right by being connected to this long tradition of teaching. There's lots of ways it can go wrong. And we want to see the right. We want to be connected to God's word. The word is transmitted to us in the history of the church. I said these are brief. I'm going to keep moving. The third authority criteria is this. Do the teacher's words hold up under the examination of reason? Do they hold up under the examination of reason? There's a really lovely passage in Acts 17. Some of you may have read it and known where Paul ends up building a church in a town called Berea. Maybe you've heard of the Bereans or you've ever driven down the street and seen a Berean Baptist church. Their churches like to call themselves Bereans. Anyway, Acts 17 verses 10 to 12 says this, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. This is where you have teaching. And now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed along with a number of prominent Greek men and women. So they heard the message. They said, okay, we like what you're saying. Give us some time to look at the word. And they examined the scriptures and they said, okay, it fits. We're going to go with it. So there was some reasoning involved. And I just want to remind you that listening to a teacher, listening to me, is not really a one-way event. You're expected to do some thinking for yourself. You're not little blank slates in which I'm writing what I think is the right theology. You've got to do some thought thinking on your own. And this is what we call theological reasoning. Now, for me, the benefit of having a church like ours with so many mature members is that many of you have been in the scriptures your whole lives. My favorite kind of question to get after a Sunday 
is the one that comes with the scripture. Pastor Jeremy, you talked about X this morning, and it made me think about scripture Y. How do these things fit together? Now, I love that question for a lot of reasons, but primarily because either one, I get to see something I haven't seen before. Two, I miss something, and I go, oh, we get to correct this. Or three, I was wrong. And because you brought me a scripture, I get to be more right with God's word. Do you see? The measuring rod is the word, and we're both measured by it, and we're both appealing to the same standard. My pastor used to hold the Bible over his head. See, we're under the word, not over the word, and as he's right, we're all equally under the word. We all get to be students and recipients of the word. And so what I mean by this is that I want you to listen to teachers who honor the complexity of reason, recognizing that we have a standard outside of ourselves that measures the things that we teach. And we each have equal access to it. That's the beauty of Protestantism. Okay, fourth criteria is this. Is the teacher listening for the right kind of praise? The right kind of praise. Not long ago, I was reading through the Proverbs and was caught by Proverbs 27.21. If you're on the paper notes, this is 27.1. That's a different proverb. In fact, I looked at it this morning to see if it was relevant for some reason. I thought it could be ironically funny. It wasn't. So um, 27.21 says this, The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, and each is tested by the praise accorded to him. Um, I think this is, an, uh, this is uncomfortable. We're all going to be tested by the things, the nice things people say about us. It's a test. And it occurred to me that there's a powerful test for teachers that we're tested by the praise accorded to us. And I think there's a couple of linked dangers here. And I really don't want you to misunderstand me. One of the dangers is, of course, the danger of ego. A person is tested by the praise accorded to him because praise can go to your head. So there's a danger of pride. But I think the, the teaching danger is actually more subtle because in the context of teaching, if I take the praise to heart, there's a real danger I'll begin preaching for the praise itself. Oh, you liked that. I'll do more like that. Oh, that got me praise. I'll do more things that did it. So you see what I'm doing? I'm slipping into Antichrist thinking because I'm thinking about what works rather than what needs to be said. And if there's any moment where I don't say what I think God wants me to say because I want you to like me more than I want to be faithful, I'm in trouble. Big trouble. So I'm not saying you should avoid saying nice things to your pastors. Please, encourage Brendan, encourage Dave, encourage Paul, and even encourage me. Talk about the things you're hearing from God in these moments. It's lovely to hear. But you should only listen to us if we're listening to God more than we are listening to you. I think that's what's important. So, a few final things to say. Why is this so important for John? Why is this teaching so important? How does instruction about authority in the Antichrist mindset steward our abiding? And there's three super brief reasons. First... Jesus promised us in Matthew 24, 11, these things. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. So teaching you on how to discern false teachers is important for recognizing them when they show up. False teaching, wolves in sheep's clothing, is an expected part of the end times in which we are living. Now, we should know how to spot it when it shows up. Secondly, you just need to remember that when John wrote this, there wasn't a New Testament yet. They had an Old Testament, but there wasn't a New Testament. And so it highlighted the need for evaluation of itinerant teachers moving around the church. Do they confess our central truth that Christ came in the flesh or not? 
And I imagine that if John were writing today, I, don't, I should be careful about putting words in John's mouth, but if I'm right about how I've looked at this, if John were writing today, he would ask something like this, does the teacher affirm the authority of the word? That's probably the commensurate um, test for, for today's church. Do you affirm the authority of the word? This is confessing that Christ came in the flesh. And lastly, instruction like this, teaching you how to be discerning, is part of our Christian formation. Jesus told us, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. So we want to be wise as serpents as we look at our teaching, but we also want to be innocent. So I give you three final words, which are each a scripture. Um, And I thought, this is best, let's just let the Bible speak these last things for us. So I have a word for the congregation, and it's Hebrews 13, 17, where the author of Hebrews says this, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So we have been trusted to steward your faith and life. And so, yeah, you've got a job to do. Let's, let's be a team in this. Now, to the teachers, I got to say this. This is James 3.1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, for we know that we will be judged more harshly. This is not a nice word for teachers, but I I take peril every time I stand in front of you and teach because I will be judged more harshly and I have to honor the burden that God lays on on our teachers. And all of our teachers share this burden. But to all of us, I want to pull to Jesus's words in Matthew 7. You know this story well, but maybe you've not thought of it in this way. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, of Jesus, and puts them to practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash." These are my last words this morning, so I'm going to have the the musicians come up at this moment. But I just want to remind you that everyone gets tested. The storm hits both houses. And in the wake of that storm, we'll find out what was built on lasting ground and what was built on shallow ground. And all teaching will be tested by the judgment of Jesus. Does it last or does it not? So the good news is Jesus is in control. Let's worship together. Would you stand?